Good morning. <clears throat> Back over uh, Memorial uh, Day, we were uh, traveling up to Michigan to see some family, and uh, our little family of four stopped at a, a restaurant to eat some dinner, and we were there with our seven-year-old Sam and our one-year-old Lila, and this family comes in, and they have this little girl that is probably just a little bit younger than Lila. I mean, she was in that kind of one range or so, and uh, we had our meal and they had their meal, and we were getting ready to walk out, and Sam stops at their table and says, your baby is very cute. And they said, well, you know, well, well, thank you. And most kids would have left it at that and walked out of the restaurant with their parents. Uh, Sam is not most kids. And so he stood there kind of awkwardly for about 30 seconds, and then he said, well, what do you think of our baby? And they, they stammered around a little bit and they said, well, uh, your baby is very cute. And, you know, we all kind of, you know, left think, feeling like, you know, too late. You know, somebody had to ask you about it. But uh, those ty- types of situations are a little bit awkward. And so what I wanted to try a- as a goal today is I want to try to put you in a situation to the best of my ability that all of us have been in before, but it's awkward. And I want to explain to you here in a little bit why I want to put you in that situation. But but first, I want you to imagine, uh, for some of you, this doesn't take much imagination, but imagine that you are someone that has a very strong opinion on something. All right, like I say, for some of you, that's not uh, a super big stretch, but that you are someone with a strong opinion, specifically on a hot topic or hot button issue. So for you, it might be uh, LGBTQ or it might be abortion, or it might be politics, or it might be Christianity or religion, you find yourself having a really strong opinion on one of these topics. And then uh, later on this week, you find yourself at a lunch table or around the water cooler or just in a conversation at work. And over the course of the next couple of minutes, it becomes pretty obvious to you that you are the only one in the group that has the opinion that you have right? You're a Democrat and everybody else in the conversation are Republicans. You're pro-life and everybody else, it turns out, is is pro-choice. You have this kind of strong faith in Jesus and everybody else in the group kind of thinks that's silly, all right? So put yourself in your mind in that situation, that you have a really strong opinion on a hot topic issue. You're in a group and it becomes clear that everybody else holds an alternative opinion. How do you handle that? Right? What do you do in that situation? Because there's tension there. Do you say nothing at all? Right? Are you that person? Do you pretend to have a different position than the one that you actually have right, in order to fit in? Right? Do you passively, aggressively post later on social media about the conversation in order to get your point of view out there when nobody else is kind of standing there? I bet almost every single one of us at some point in our life have felt this tension. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm pro-life and everybody in this conversation is pro-choice. Or I'm a Democrat and everybody else is, what do you do? Do you speak up? Do you remain silent? What, What on earth do you do? And I wanted to try to do my best to kind of draw out that feeling that I think is a common feeling that everybody has felt before because this is almost the exact situation that Paul is going uh, to describe uh, that, that he and Peter were in here in just a moment. Now, I think I, I want to pause here just for a moment because I think we tend to have this romanticized view of the early church, 
right? That the early church, that the modern day church has its issues and has its struggles, but the early church, they had no struggles. They, they were all perfectly unified, loved one another and, and all of that stuff. And part of the reason that we feel that way are passages like Acts 2, right? You can almost hear the music in the background, right? As we read this text, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You hear the little birds chirping, right? Everyone was filled with awe as, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of, of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Right? It sounds perfect. And the early church was really quite unified. But what you need to know is as time went on, there was a major, major tension brewing in the church. Uh, a tension unlike probably anything that we've experienced. I mean, the kind of modern day church has had to kind of deal with the worship wars, right? Of, or, you know, how is the church going to worship and uh, things like that. I think it pales in comparison to what was brewing in the early church. And the issue was over, you saw it on the video, fundamentally, what does it mean to be a Christian? Right? The Christian movement had started in Jerusalem, so the early church at the beginning was by and large Jewish men and women who had come to Christ. Right? And, and over time, that message spread through Paul. It moved to the Gentiles, to those that were not Jewish. And this debate broke out in the early church of, all right, the Gentiles are coming to Christ. Do they need to essentially become Jewish in order to be Christian? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to uh, celebrate certain feasts? Do they need to follow certain customs? And Paul felt strongly that the answer to that was no. That Christ and his work is enough for our salvation. And so that's part of the reason uh, he wrote uh, this, this book of Galatians. But the early church decided to have a church meeting, right? And uh, if you've been around church for very many years, you know that a lot of times like church meeting denotes something not great. And, and in this case, that really was true. They said, we need to have a church meeting. We need to get everyone together and we need to come up with an answer to this question, All right? The movement started out with the Jews. It's moved on to the Gentiles. Do Gentiles need to become Jewish to be Christian? And uh, in Acts chapter 15, you can read about it there. They had this thing called the Jerusalem Council. And uh, they gathered kind of everybody together, and it was James who stood up and offered one of the definitive statements about how the church was going to operate in the future. And I love this statement. He says this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that. And, and I, I think it is a good mindset for the church to follow. Don't make it difficult right? Make it easy to understand. Make it easy to grasp. Don't make it difficult. So the early church decided the answer is no. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. But that, the controversy didn't stop with the Jerusalem Council. Uh, this group called the Judaizers, they continued to spread that you do, in fact, need to become Jewish. And there was a lot of friction, a lot of disagreement in the, in the early church. And now we arrive uh, in Galatians at a text that is essentially, you know how history, what history calls this? You, you can kind of tell how awkward this was. History calls this the Antioch Incident. Right? That's how history refers to it. Like, when they talk about it later, they're like, oh, yeah. 
in Antioch, we had an incident, right? And you know, like if, if you're celebrating Thanksgiving later this year, and, and after Thanksgiving you come to church, and I was like, how's it, how'd Thanksgiving go? And you're like, we had an incident, right? Nobody is like, oh, it sounds like you had a really great Thanksgiving, right? Nobody thinks that. They're like, what happened? And, and so, this is that, right? There was later on in hushed tones, like what happened in Antioch? There was an incident. And, and it was between Peter and it was between Paul. And I want to show you what happened. And uh, then we'll attempt to apply this text, right? All right? Here it is, verse 11. When Cephas, this is Peter, the apostle Peter, right? And uh, a lot of people think that this is kind of denotes uh, how uh, maybe ticked off Paul still was about this incident. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, right? Because he stood condemned. Before certain men came to James, uh, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, if you know much about Peter from the Bible, you know that Peter had these up and down moments when it came to his faith, all right? Peter is well known for these. Like in one story, uh, they're all in a boat and they see Jesus walking on the water. And Peter is the one who kind of stands up and says, Jesus, call me out. That's Peter that does that. And Jesus said, all right, you can, and Peter walks on the water for a few steps, right? Um, and, th and then he sinks, but that, that's kind of a high point of Peter. And then you have this moment where Jesus is describing to his disciples how he must be crucified. And, and Peter says, no, I will not allow that to happen. Even if all the, I never will leave you. And Jesus has to say to Peter, like get behind me, Satan, right? So that's a low point, right? I don't think you need a preacher for this, but that, that's a low point. And uh, because Peter was trying to dissuade Jesus from his mission. And then you've got, uh, during Jesus's crucifixion, Peter denies Jesus three times. And then you have uh, the very first sermon that was ever uh, given to the early church. Peter preaches it. And 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. And we could do this kind of all day, honestly. Peter's up and he's down. And Paul, who wrote the book of Galatians, Paul considered this a down moment for Peter. So what was happening in, in, in this text is that um, the early church had adopted this mindset about the good news, that it is the forgiveness of sins. It is your life can be changed by Jesus. That's part of the good, the good news. It is for everyone. They, they had done all this. Um, and, and so Peter believed this, that this gospel of good news. And he's in this room. And at the time that he's in this room, he's spending time with the Gentiles, Right? He's ministering to them. He's loving them. He's spending time with them. And then when the Judaizers and the Jews arrive, all of a sudden Peter is turning his back on the Gentiles and spending time only with the Jews. And it really, really bothered Paul. Paul said, man, before the Jews arrived, you were hanging out with the Gentiles, loving them, ministering them. And then as soon as these Judaizers who believed you needed to become Jewish to be Christian, as soon as they uh, arrived, Paul withdraws and spent, turns his back on the Gentiles. And what Paul is accusing Peter of here is responding to fear. That you, you responded in fear to the Judaizers. Now, before we totally jump on Peter, right, let me tell you about this kind of uh, the Judaizers. Let me tell you a little bit about what their mindset was toward Gentiles, all right? So that you can kind of fully understand what we're talking about, the racial tones of some of this, 
right? So what was the Judaizers' view of the Gentiles in Paul's day? Well, they were raised in an environment where if you uh, intentionally or accidentally touched a Gentile, right, you needed to go home and wash your hands because your hand was now unclean. They believed that if you were walking along the street, all right, these Judaizers did, and you saw a Gentile woman having a baby, you were forbidden by their mindset to help because you could not participate in bringing another non-Jew into the world, right? This is kind of the mindset, all right? They were, uh, they were taught that uh, you were never, ever allowed to allow a Gentile to enter your home, and then they were taught that really to, to hate Samaritans and to hate Romans, all right? And, and you see, if you kind of think through the ministry of Jesus, you saw how often Jesus went after this mindset, right? He's spending time with Romans. He's spending time with Samaritans. He's spending time with Gentiles, trying to kind of pick away at some of this mindset that was there in this kind of radical Jewish group. And so when the gospel clearly spread to the Gentiles, some in this Jewish movement, some of them, their mindset was, all right, it's clear the Holy Spirit has gone to the Gentiles. Fine, let them come to Jesus, but they need to become Jewish, right? Let them come, but they need to also become Jewish because we are superior to them. And I think God had changed a lot of this in Peter's heart. I do, uh, but this is a tense situation and everyone's in the same room. And just think about it just for a moment. When you're in a tense situation in a room, it is easy to withdraw. It is easy to be silent. It is easy to refuse to take a stand. You ever been in that environment before? Where a conversation turns toward Jesus and you can tell there's a little bit, I mean, everybody in our culture loves Jesus right up until the time that Jesus uh, goes from a really nice person to meddling in my life, right? Uh, where, where he's talking about sexuality or ethics or salvation. Then all of a sudden Jesus becomes very, very controversial. And, and have you ever been in that moment where it turns controversial? You know, because I know how easy it is to withdraw, how easy it is to be silent. And this is what Peter does. He withdraws, he is silent, and his silence sends a message to Paul, verse 14. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul was frustrated by Peter. He was, because Paul knew what Peter believed. Peter believed the gospel, right? Peter had preached the gospel. Peter believed in the two banners of this series. It is the sufficiency of Christ, his banner number one, that the sufficiency of Christ, that his work is enough for your salvation, his spirit is enough to change and transform you. His grace is sufficient for you. It is the sufficiency of Christ. But then banner number two is this is for everyone. This is for the Jew and for the Gentile. Peter believed that. I believe that Peter believed that. As a matter of fact, we are told in the book of Acts about this vision that Peter had where uh, Jesus kind of lowered down uh, in this vision a blanket filled of all these types of meats that Jewish people were not allowed to partake in. And, and the, the blanket comes down and Jesus says to Peter, go ahead and kill and eat, go ahead and eat. And, and Peter says to Jesus, I can't, they're unclean. That's unclean, I can't do that. And Jesus said, don't call anything unclean that I am telling you is clean. And at this moment, the vision kind of breaks. 
And at this moment, Peter is invited to a Gentile's house. Remember what I said about this kind of radical Jewish group about you don't go to a Gentile's house, but Peter's invited. And all of a sudden the message becomes clear to him, the, the message of the vision. This gospel of good news is for everyone. It's for those that follow dietary restrictions and those that don't. It is for the Jew, it is for the Gentile. And if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, you ought to be really thankful that Peter and Paul and the early church understood, this is for you, this is for me. But by withdrawing and by his silence in this tense moment, Paul believed he was communicating to the Judaizers, you're right, you're right. The Gentiles do need to conform to Judaism in order to be saved. And you know what the truth of it is? Unintentionally or not, sometimes silence is taking a position. Sometimes it is. Now, before we bury Peter, I'm sure he had a perspective on this. And, you know, there's not a ton of biblical evidence on what that is. But if I were to guess, and this is just me now guessing, understand that. But I would guess that Peter would say he was trying to maintain a relationship with the Judaizers so that he might convince them of the truth. That is going to be my guess that that is what Peter's perspective was. That if I have mouthed off to them, if I had taken a stand with them, I would have lost influence. And I get that, I get that perspective. Do you? I do. I, I get that perspective that I think this can be one of the greatest tensions in our culture. When you're in that awkward situation that I described earlier, when you don't know what to say, to, do I confront or do I maintain relationship? Do I say something or do I sit back quietly? Do I attack or do I retreat? And I'm afraid that this sermon is not about that today, unfortunately. So we are going to have to leave that one to the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, that is a big enough answer that I'm not sure we can really answer that today because I think the Holy Spirit would have us do different things in different situations. I can tell you, Paul, by personality, almost always chose to confront, <laughs> right? Peter, by personality, it appeared that he had this kind of withdrawal moment. Paul's like, I'm not withdrawn from anything, right? So I saw Cephas, I told him to his face, right? I confronted him in his face, right? This is Paul's personality. You can hear it in the writing that I went straight up to Peter, Cephas. I went straight up to him and I gave him what for. I told him exactly what I thought. And so Paul, as the text continues, this is a beautiful text, by the way, we're about to get into. Paul is going to take the next few minutes and he is going to address what he believes is the chief concern of these Judaizers. All right. all right, so he wanted, he's taken all of their arguments about why you should be Jewish, and, and Paul's obviously opposed to this. You don't need to be Jewish to become Christian. The sufficiency of Christ, and it is for everyone, the two banners of the series. All right, and so Paul's going to address their chief concern, and here's their chief concern. Paul, when you tell the Gentiles that grace is enough, and when you tell the Gentiles that faith is enough, and when you tell the Gentiles that uh, Jesus is enough, Paul, you are giving the Gentiles an easy believism, right, is, is the accusation. You are letting them off the hook, 
right? That they don't have to comply with these rituals. They don't have to comply with circumcision. Paul, we had to have a surgery, right? Because of our history, right? These Gentiles, they don't have to have surgery. They don't have to follow these customs. They don't have to do any of that. You are letting them off easy. And so Paul is gonna address that misunderstanding of the Jewish folks in that teaching because he says, no, no, no. That's not true, and that's not the gospel. The gospel is not like easy believism. Let me just show you what Paul says. That'll be easier, all right? All right, here's uh, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one is justified. But if in seeking to be justified by Christ, we find uh, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, all right? So he's talking about the kind of core message of the gospel is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God right? That it's not about your nationality. It's not about being Jewish. It's not about being Gentile. All have sinned. He said, so if in the process of finding Christ, Jews realize that they're sinners, but that they can be saved by grace, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would not be a lawbreaker. All right, so let's dissect this a little bit. Because Paul's going to kind of talk about what true faith looks like. And he's going to answer the concern of the Judaizers. But first, he talks about justification. All right? How are we justified? Now, the kind of cute way that I heard this described years and years ago, and this is kind of a preacher way to describe this, so you can forgive me by, for that, even though I am indeed a preacher, but just, you know, it's kind of overly cutesy, but that justification is the process by how God can see us just as if we'd never sinned. So justification talks about how are we forgiven? How are we made right in the sight of God? How do we come before him? So here is the question of this text. How are we justified before God? How are we declared righteous and good before God? Are we justified by our own righteousness and by works of the law? Right? So that this is the mindset of the person that says, if I just try hard enough, if I'm just good enough, if I just grin and bear, can I be justified before God on the basis of my works? And way back even in the Old Testament, they even understood that this dog wouldn't hunt, right? One, one of the prophets said that our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before God. That's Old Testament, that our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to overestimate our own righteousness and we tend to underestimate God's holiness. Right, you kind of tracking with me on that? That we tend to kind of overestimate our good deeds. We tend to dismiss our bad deeds and we tend to underestimate God's holiness. And Paul says there's no one righteous, no, not one, but there is good news here. And the good news is that we are declared righteous by the work of Jesus on the cross through faith. That through the cross and through his efforts and through his righteousness, we are declared righteous. So we are not earning our righteousness. We are declared righteous by the work of Jesus. Now let's get back to the question Paul is answering, all right? So if we are all sinners 
and Christ Jesus on the cross is faithful to forgive sin, here's the question that Paul is trying to answer. Does that mean Jesus promotes sin? Right? This, is the, this is one of the questions Paul is trying to answer. If the gospel is inviting us to come to Jesus and have all of our sin forgiven, does the gospel unintentionally promote sin? That you should sin whenever and how often you want, and the blood of Jesus on the cross will declare you righteous. Is that the gospel? Live however you want to live, do whatever you want to do, sin a palooza, you know, Christmas Day sort of thing in terms of sin. Is that the gospel? And then Jesus and his blood on the cross will just forgive you and you can start a whole new week. And Paul's answer is very succinct. Absolutely not. He said, Jesus would never and has never promoted sin. So the gospel is not Jesus promoting sin. Why? The reason to the answer why is that we have become overly fixated on the good news in terms of justification, how we're forgiven. But there's actually another part of the good news that we will discover in just a minute. And the kind of key word that Paul is going to kind of focus on for the remainder of the book of Galatians that keeps us from this mindset of, I'm just going to live how I want to live, do what I want to do, and the blood of Jesus is faithful to forgive. The key word that is going to keep you from falling into that trap is the word faith. All right, let's let's continue on in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by, I live by faith. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He says, being declared righteous by Jesus comes as the result of faith. The writer of Hebrews will later describe faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That faith is confidence in Jesus, not perfect confidence. Sometimes faith is described as small as a mustard seed, but it is some measure of confidence in Jesus, confidence in him, confidence in his example, confidence that he can forgive me, confidence in that he can secure my eternity, confidence in him. So faith is an attribute that I see in my son. When we are swimming at the pool and he is at the side of the pool and he jumps into water that is above his head because his dad is standing there with arms open wide saying, I will catch you. He has confidence that I am going to catch him. He has faith that I am going to catch him. So he is willing to jump into water that is above his head, believing that I will not allow him to drown. Faith is an attribute I see in my daughter, that when she is scared, we had a huge clap of thunder the other night. When she is scared, she comes running to mommy and daddy and says, down, 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 down. She means up, but we're working on that. All right, um, she's, she's got them backwards, right? But down, 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 down. And and we know that she needs to be lifted up. She has confidence in mommy. She has confidence in daddy that things are going to be okay with us. And faith is an attribute I see in so many people when they decide to follow Jesus, 
and they have confidence in him that he is my Lord, and they go running to him and jump in water that is over their head into the arms of their Savior. One result of faith is justification. It is, it's true. We are declared righteous by Jesus. Even when you mess up, even when you screw up, we receive a savior. It is one result of faith. It is not the only result of faith. You know what another result of faith is? When you express your confidence in Jesus, it's now one, another result is I now have a Lord who commands me. I now have a teacher who teaches me. I now have a lamp who lights my way. I now have a prophet who preaches to me. I now have an example who shows me. I now have a Holy Spirit who guides me. I am crucified with Christ, and he now lives in me. And this is as much a a, a part of grace as the forgiveness of sins. The early church, uh, the, the church over the last hundred years or so, we have become fixated on justification, rightly so. It is good news that when you screw up, when you mess up, when you fail, your savior is committed to forgiving you. It is good news, but we have neglected sanctification. Justification says, this is how I am forgiven. Sanctification says, this is how I'm changed. Sanctification is the process of being changed by Jesus. This is why Paul uses all this life stuff in this text. He says, I live for God through faith. I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's the truth. Faith in Jesus and his grace will never motivate you to sin. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't motivate us to sin. He, so, but we do follow him. And when we fail, he forgives us. But you better believe that when you put your faith in Jesus, he's going to become a prophet that preaches to you. He's going to give you a Holy Spirit who will guide you. He's going to become a lamp to light your way. He's going to become an example you can follow. And all of that is part of the good news. So Paul says, and it is part of grace. So Paul says, listen, I refuse. I love this text. I refuse to set aside the grace of God and replace it with law. Paul says, I refuse to do that. This is what the Judaizers were attempting to do. They say, man, we want people to live righteous lives, so replace grace with law, right? And in in a weird way, it almost makes sense. It's like, we want to spur people to righteousness. We want to spur people to holiness. And I think, first of all, historically, the church has bought into this idea that we we are the church, not the Holy Spirit, right? So like, it's not my job to like force you to live righteous lives. It's not your job to force me to live righteous lives. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. But churches all over the country replace grace with law. And the temptation is this, that we undervalue grace and we overvalue rote obedience to the law. And Paul says, if, this is rough, rough translation, but Paul says, that dog won't hunt. You can check the Greek, it's there. (laughs) Undervaluing grace does not result in righteousness. If you teach people to just rote obedience to the law, you and I can do that about the time that my kid gets mouthy in the car on the way home to church. 
right? That's about how long I can kind of dig in and make this thing happen. I don't need rote obedience. I need his Holy Spirit to change me and transform me and empower me. I need a savior who's gonna teach me, a savior who's gonna be an example to me, a savior who's gonna empower me, and a savior who's gonna help me, and yes, a savior who's gonna forgive me when I fall short. Now, I've used this example seven, eight times before, but I like it and I have a microphone, so you're gonna hear it again, right? I want, I want to kind of paint a picture for you of how I think this works. I want you to imagine for a moment that the state of Illinois does away with all speed limits Monday morning, right? I know, right? They do away with all speed limits on Monday morning. You can drive as fast as you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, no speed limits at all. And your first temptation would be that kind of audible thing that I heard, score, sweet. Right? I can go as fast and, and often as I want. And maybe you would do that in some places. You know where you wouldn't speed? You wouldn't speed uh, in front of your house where your kids are often playing with their friends. You wouldn't speed there. You wouldn't speed past their school. You wouldn't speed on the street where your wife jogs. Why? The law says it's okay. Why wouldn't you do that? Because of relationship, because of love, and because of grace. So many people think if you preach love and you preach grace, people are going to sin constantly. And Paul says grace doesn't do that. Grace and love increases obedience. Grace and love increases righteousness. It increases because when you love someone, you want to please them, but that's not the only reason. It increases because in that relationship, we are empowered. And I need to be empowered. In relationship with Jesus, we are empowered. In relationship with Jesus, we get that example. In relationship with Jesus, we are forgiven when we fall short. In, in relationship with, with Jesus, our eternity is secured so we don't have that thing where we're like striving to save ourselves for all of eternity. We know our eternity is secured. So it just opens up a freedom in Christ. And so 2,000 years ago, we were given this incredible gift named Jesus. And the law pointed to him, and the prophets pointed to him, the miracles of the Old Testament pointed to him, everything pointed to him. And it is this relationship with Jesus and our dependence on him, this is the grace Paul was talking about. Jesus is the grace. Jesus is the gift. And it's in the context of this relationship through faith in him that we are forgiven and we are set free. And it's in context of this relationship that we live different lives. And Paul says it is for everyone. So Paul says... Not only am I not setting aside the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in favor of the law, not only am I not doing that, I am going to double down on grace. I am going to double down on Jesus. I'm going to double down on love because Paul believed when grace was in its proper place, when love was in its proper place, when Jesus was in his proper place, everything else would fall into place. And so he is going to spend the next couple chapters of this book uh, talking about all the different ways in which Jesus is better, all of the ways in which grace is better. And he's just going to extol Jesus. And I can't wait to preach it. It's going to be really fun. But I want to kind of set the, the table for where we're going over the next few weeks. That he is better. He is better. There is a temptation when you see moral decay. And there is a there is a temptation when you see a culture going downhill. 
There is a, a temptation when you see people in your life that are going downhill. The temptation is to set aside grace and revert to law and say, all right, I am going to go Old Testament, right, on you, right? And you let's open up to the book of Leviticus, right? And to kind of go Old Testament, and, and that is the temptation. Paul says, no, it is important that we remind people of grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for his grace. We thank you for his love. Um, There is sometimes a temptation to set aside your grace. May we never do it. May we never set it aside. May we instead remember it and celebrate it and be changed by it. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for his example. We need, to, we need to be reminded today that, yeah, your grace forgives us, but your grace also changes us. And we need both. I want to be forgiven of every one of my sins. But I don't want to do them anymore either. I want to be changed. Would your spirit please enter this place and begin to change us and transform us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.